0: Chapter eight of The End of the Tether by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Chapter eight. The End of the Tether. For a while after his seconds answering Hoot, Massey hung over the engine room gloomily. Captain Wally, who, by the power of five hundred pounds, had kept his command for three years, might have been suspected of never having seen that coast before. He seemed unable to put down his glasses, as though they had been glued under his contracted eyebrows. This settled frown gave to his face an air of invincible and just severity, but his raised elbow trembled slightly, and the perspiration poured from under his hat as if a second sun had suddenly blazed up at the zenith by the side of the ardent still globe already there, in whose blinding white heat the earth whirled and shone like a mote of dust. From time to time, still holding up his glasses, he raised his other hand to wipe his streaming face. The drops rolled down his cheeks, fell like rain upon the white hairs of his beard, and brusquely, as if guided by an uncontrollable and anxious impulse, his arm reached out to the stand of the engine-room telegraph. The gong clanged down below. The balanced vibration of the dead slow speed ceased altogether with every sound and tremor of the ship, as if the great stillness that reigned upon the coast had stolen in through her sides of iron and taken possession of her innermost recesses. The illusion of perfect immobility seemed to fall upon her from the luminous blue dome without a stain, arching over a flat sea without a stir. The faint breeze she had made for herself expired as if all at once the air had become too thick to budge. Even the slight hiss of the water on her stem died out. The narrow, long hull, carrying its way without a ripple, seemed to approach the shoal water of the bay by stealth. The plunge of the lead with the mournful, mechanical cry of the lascar came at longer and longer intervals, and the men on her bridge seemed to hold their breath. The malay at the helm looked fixedly at the compass card, The captain and the serang stared at the coast. Massey had left the skylight and, walking flat-footed, had returned softly to the very spot on the bridge he had occupied before. A slow, lingering grin exposed his set of big white teeth. They gleamed evenly in the shade of the awning like the keyboard of a piano in a dusky room. At last, pretending to talk to himself in excessive astonishment, he said, not very loud, Stop the engines now. What next, I wonder? He waited, stooping from the shoulders, his head bowed, his glance oblique. Then, raising his voice a shade, If I dared make an absurd remark, I would dare say that you haven't the stomach to... But a yelling spirit of excitement, like some frantic soul wandering unsuspected in the vast stillness of the coast, had seized upon the body of the lascar at the lead. The languid monotony of his sing-song changed to a swift, sharp clamour. The weight flew after a single whirr, the line whistled, splash followed splash, in haste. The water had shoaled, and the man, instead of the drowsy tale of fathoms, was calling out the soundings in feet. FIFTEEN FEET, FIFTEEN, FIFTEEN, FOURTEEN, FOURTEEN. Captain Wally lowered the arm, holding the glasses. It descended slowly, as if by its own weight. No other part of his towering body stirred, and the swift cries with their eager warning note passed him by as though he had been deaf. Massy, very still, and turning an attentive ear, had fastened his eyes upon the silvery, close cropped back of the steady old head. The ship herself seemed to be arrested but for the gradual decrease of depth under her keel. Thirteen feet, thirteen, twelve, cried the leadsman, anxiously below the bridge and suddenly the barefooted sarang stepped away noiselessly to steal a glance over the side. Narrow of shoulder, in a suit of faded blue cotton, an old grey felt hat rammed down on his head with a hollow in the nape of his dark neck, and with his slender limbs, he appeared from the back no bigger than a boy of fourteen. There was a childlike impulsiveness in the curiosity with which he watched the spread of the voluminous yellowish convolutions rolling up from below to the surface of the blue water, like massive clouds driving slowly upwards on the unfathomable sky. He was not startled at the sight in the least. It was not doubt, but the certitude that the keel of the safala must be stirring the mud now, which made him peep over the side. His peering eyes, set aslant in a face of the Chinese type, a little old face, immovable, as if carved in old brown oak, had informed him long before that the ship was not headed at the bar properly paid off from the fair maid, together with the rest of the crew, after the completion of the sail. He had hung in his faded blue suit and floppy grey hat about the doors of the harbour office, till one day, seeing Captain Walley coming along to get a crew for the Sephala, he had put himself quietly in the way, with his bare feet in the dust and an upward mute glance. The eyes of his old commander had fallen on him favourably. It must have been an auspicious day and in less than half an hour the white men in the office had written his name on a document as Serang of the fire-ship Since that time he had repeatedly looked at that estuary, upon that coast, from this bridge and from this side of the bar. The record of the visual world fell through his eyes upon an unspeculating mind as on a sensitised plate through the lens of a camera. His knowledge was absolute and precise. Nevertheless, had he been asked his opinion and especially if questioned in the downright alarming manner of white men, he would have displayed the hesitation of ignorance. He was certain of his facts, but such a certitude counted for little against the doubt what answer would be pleasing. Fifty years ago, in a jungle village, and before he was a day old, his father, who died without ever seeing a white face, had had his nativity cast by a man of skill and wisdom in astrology, because in the arrangement of the stars may be read the last word of human destiny. His destiny had been to thrive by the favour of various white men on the sea. He had swept the decks of ships, had tended their helms, had minded their stores, had risen at last to be a serang, and his placid mind had remained as incapable of penetrating the simplest motives of those he served as they themselves were incapable of detecting through the crust of the earth the secret nature of its heart, which may be fire or may be stone. But he had no doubt whatever that the Sephala was out of the proper track for crossing the bar at Batu Beru. It was a slight error. The ship could not have been more than twice her own length too far to the northward, and the white man, at a loss for a cause, since it was impossible to suspect Captain Wally of blundering ignorance of want of skill or of neglect, would have been inclined to doubt the testimony of his senses. It was some such feeling that kept Massy motionless, with his teeth laid bare by an anxious grin. Not so the Serang. He was not troubled by any intellectual mistrust of his senses. If his captain chose to stir the mud, it was well. He had known in his life white men indulge in outbreaks equally strange. He was only genuinely interested to see what would come of it. At last, apparently satisfied, he stepped back from the rail. He had made no sound. Captain Wally, however, seemed to have observed the movements of his serang. Holding his head rigidly, he asked, with a mere stir of the lips, "'Going ahead still, serang?' "'Still going a little, Twan,' answered the Malay, then added casually, "'She is over.' The lead confirmed his words. The depth of water increased at every cast, and the soul of excitement departed suddenly from the lascar, swung in the canvas belt over the Sophala's side. Captain Wally ordered the lead in, set the engines ahead without haste, and diverting his eyes from the coast, directed the serang to keep a course for the middle of the entrance. Massey brought the palm of his hand with a loud smack against his thigh. You grazed on the bar. Just look astern and see if you didn't. Look at the track she left. You can see it plainly. "'Upon my soul, I thought you would. "'What made you do that? "'What on earth made you do that? "'I believe you are trying to scare me.' "'He talked slowly, as if circumspectly, "'keeping his prominent black eyes on his captain. "'There was also a slight plaintive note in his rising collar, "'for primarily it was the clear sense of a wrong "'suffered undeservedly that made him hate the man "'who, for a beggarly five hundred pounds, "'claimed a sixth part of the profits "'under the three years' agreement.' Whenever his resentment got the better of the awe the person of Captain Wally inspired, he would positively whimper with fury. "'You don't know what to invent to plague my life out of me. I would not have thought that a man of your sort would condescend.' He paused, half hopefully, half timidly, whenever Captain Wally made the slightest movement in the deck chair, as though expecting to be conciliated by a soft speech, or else rushed upon and hunted off the bridge.' "'I am puzzled,' he went on again with the watchful, unsmiling bearing of his big teeth. "'I don't know what to think. "'I do believe you're trying to frighten me. "'You very nearly planted her on the bar for at least twelve hours, "'besides getting the engines choked with mud. "'Ships can't afford to lose twelve hours on a trip nowadays, "'as you ought to know very well, and do know very well, to be sure, only—' "'His slow volubility—' The sideways cranings of his neck, the black glances out of the very corners of his eyes, left Captain Wally unmoved. He looked at the deck with a severe frown. Massey waited for some little time, then began to threaten plaintively. You think you've got me bound hand and foot in that agreement? You think you can torment me in any way you please? Ah, but remember it has another six weeks to run yet. There's time for me to dismiss you before the three years are out. You will do yet something that will give me the chance to dismiss you "'and make you wait a twelve-month for your money "'before you can take yourself off and pull out your five hundred "'and leave me without a penny to get the new boilers for her. "'You gloat over that idea, don't you? "'I do believe you sit here gloating. "'It's as if I had sold my soul for five hundred pounds "'to be everlastingly damned in the end.' "'He paused without apparent exasperation, then continued evenly.' "'with the boilers worn out and the survey hanging over my head, Captain Wally. "'Captain Wally, I say, what do you do with your money? "'You must have stacks of money somewhere, a man like you must. "'It stands to reason. "'I'm not a fool, you know, Captain Wally. "'Partner.' "'Again he paused as though he had done for good. "'He passed his tongue over his lips, "'gave a backward glance at the serang conning the ship "'with quiet whispers and slight signs of the hand. The wash of the propeller sent a swift ripple, crested with dark froth upon a long, flat spit of black slime. The Safala had entered the river. The trail she had stirred up over the bar was a mile astern of her now, out of sight, had disappeared utterly, and the smooth, empty sea along the coast was left behind in the glittering desolation of sunshine. On each side of her, low down, the growth of sombre, twisted mangroves covered the semi-liquid banks, and Massey continued in his old tone, with an abrupt start, as if his speech had been ground out of him like the tune of a music box by turning a handle. Though if anybody ever got the best of me, it is you. I don't mind saying this, I've said it. There. What more can you want? Isn't that enough for your pride, Captain Wally? You got over me from the first. It's all of a piece when I look back at it. You allowed me to insert that clause about intemperance without saying anything, only looking very sick when I made a point of it going in black on white. How could I tell what was wrong about you? There's generally something wrong somewhere. And lo and behold, when you come on board, it turns out that you've been in the habit of drinking nothing but water for years and years. His dogmatic, reproachful whine stopped. He brooded profoundly after the manner of crafty and unintelligent men. It seemed inconceivable that Captain Wally should not laugh at the expression of disgust that overspread the heavy, yellow countenance. But Captain Wally never raised his eyes, sitting in his armchair, outraged, dignified, and motionless. "'Much good it was to me,' Massey remonstrated monotonously to insert a clause for dismissal for intemperance against a man who drinks nothing but water. And you looked so upset too when I read my draft in the lawyer's office that morning. Captain Wally, you looked so crestfallen that I made sure I'd gone home on your weak spot. A ship owner can't be too careful as to the sort of skipper he gets. You must have been laughing at me in your sleeve all the blessed time, eh? What are you going to say? Captain Wally had only shuffled his feet slightly. A dull animosity became apparent in Massey's sideways stare. But recollect that there are other grounds of dismissal. There's habitual carelessness amounting to incompetence. There's gross and persistent neglect of duty. I'm not quite as big a fool as you try to make me out to be. You've been careless of late leaving everything to that serang why i've seen you letting that old fool of a malay take bearings for you as if you were too big to attend to your work yourself and what do you call that silly touch-and-go manner in which you took the ship over the bar just now you expect me to put up with that Leaning on his elbow against the ladder abaft the bridge, Stern, the mate, tried to hear, blinking the while from the distance at the second engineer, who had come up for a moment and stood in the engine-room companion. Wiping his hands on a bunch of cotton waste, he looked about with indifference to the right and left at the river-banks slipping astern of the cephala steadily. Massey turned full at the chair. The character of his wine became again threatening. Take care, I may yet dismiss you, and feast of your money for a year, I may. But before the silent, rigid immobility of the man whose money had come in the nick of time to save him from utter ruin, his voice died out in his throat. Not that I want you to go, he resumed after a silence and an absurdly insinuating tone. "'I want nothing better than to be friends and renew the agreement "'if you will consent to find another couple of hundred "'to help with the new boilers, Captain Wally. "'I've told you before, she must have new boilers. "'You know it as well as I do. "'Have you thought this over?' "'He waited. "'The slender stem of the pipe with its bulky lump of a bowl at the end "'hung down from his thick lips. "'It had gone out.' Suddenly he took it from between his teeth and wrung his hands slightly. "'Don't you believe me?' He thrust the pipe-bowl into the pocket of his shiny black jacket. "'It's like dealing with the devil,' he said. "'Why don't you speak? "'At first you were so high and mighty with me, "'I hardly dared to creep about my own deck. "'Now I can't get a word from you. "'You don't seem to see me at all. "'What does it mean?' Upon my soul you terrify me with this deaf and dumb trick. What's going on in that head of yours? What are you plotting against me there so hard that you can't say a word? You'll never make me believe that you... You don't know where to lay your hands on a couple of hundred. You've made me curse the day I was born. Mr Massey, said Captain Wally, suddenly without stirring. The engineer started violently. "'If that is so, I can only beg you to forgive me.' "'Starboard,' muttered the serang to the helmsman, "'and the sephala began to swing round the bend into the second reach. "'Ah!' Massy shuddered. "'You make my blood run cold. "'What made you come here? "'What made you come aboard that evening, "'all of a sudden, with your high talk and your money tempting me? "'I always wondered, what was your motive?' "'You've fastened yourself on me to have easy times "'and go fat on my lifeblood, I tell you. "'Was that it? "'I believe you are the greatest miser in the world. "'Or else why? "'No, I am only poor,' interrupted Captain Wally stonily. "'Steady,' murmured the serang. Massey turned away with his chin on his shoulder. "'I don't believe it,' he said in his dogmatic tone. "'Captain Wally made no movement.' There you sit like a gorged vulture, exactly like a vulture. He embraced the middle of the reach and both the banks in one blank, unseeing, circular glance, and left the bridge slowly. End of chapter 8